Matthew chapter 8. As you're getting there, I'll kind of start us up, particularly in our uh, introduction here. Um, as I was preparing for this, uh, anybody who's taking notes, uh, I like to have kind of that overall theme, so I, I try to name it. I try to, <clears throat> excuse me, title it, and this one, this one is titled, Love Comes at a Cost, um, which is not always a, a thing that we hear today. But um, a few weeks ago, we began Matthew post-Sermon on the Mount, and we spent many weeks going through Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which records Jesus' epic sermon. Chapter 7 ends with, I love this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Commentaries say that Matthew recorded scenes of miracles, particularly of healing, to support and witness that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that he makes this one of his central themes even more so than than the other Gospels. So it's also then, if we think about that, it's also really important to think about the other things that Matthew reports on, um, that they are the teachings of Jesus to support and uh, witness to the Godship of Jesus. He takes a lot of space right now at the beginning of this gospel to record the whole sermon, but significantly after that, for the next two chapters, and as what we'll kind of see today, Matthew records many instances of healing and miracles to to witness to Jesus' power and claim to be the Christ, the Son of God himself. These would be the the two chapters that Ricky preached on two weeks ago, if you were here, chapters 8 and 9, and we went through the whole chapters, except for some small parts. Um, In these chapters, we see how Jesus shows his power to heal what is broken and his kingship of the kingdom he ushered in. He not only showed the people then and us today of his authority over creation, sickness, and death, but what the kingdom is supposed to look like and what it will look like, one where his people and the earth will be restored and live completely under his reign, the reign of Christ. It's a beautiful picture, but not only a beautiful picture, a make-believe sentimentality, but our actual hope, church, for the eternal future. But in these two chapters, we skipped over a few scenes, two of which we will cover today. In the middle of these healings and miracles of chapters 8 and 9, Matthew inserts two scenes or other instances uh, of things that happened along the way. So, as I've asked you, let's turn to chapters 8 and 9. We're going to read the scenes from verses uh, chapter 8, 18 through 22. And we'll focus on that, and then we'll read again chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. So, um, I want to read both of them right off the bat here. And I'll be reading from the NIV today. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law, or a scribe, came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. 
Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. And then fast forward to verse 9 of chapter 9, the next scene. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus says, He said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, first, when when Ricky was mapping these areas out to preach, uh, he gave these two on one day, but he also told me that I could split them up if need be. Um, and they really could be split up if you, if you really wanted to. But since this was his original intention to have them together, I didn't want to split them up. And, um, but I also like to preach on one main idea, one overall picture, right? To give us a clear focus as we go from here uh, for own study and, and reflection and, apply, and application. Um, but at first, if, you're, if, you, you know, if you haven't been reading this and studying this along the way, you're like, if you're like me, you're, you're thinking, well, what, what is the common thread here, right? Um, it, was kinda con- it was a little bit difficult for me to bring those two together, bring in a common theme. But eventually, I believe the Holy Spirit revealed something that was actually really quite obvious. And you're going to be like, well, gosh, you have a doctorate? <laughs> Jeez. Um, <laughs> it's in plain clarinet, so. Um, anyway, I want to put it out here so we don't miss it, okay? Right up front. Do you remember what we kept coming back to in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus said often in one way or another, You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He keeps redrawing that line, right? We keep using that. But it has always been the line that God originally intended, church. But that man redrew to his own liking. It's the line of, here it is, love, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law rests on these two commandments, Jesus says, And with that in mind, what Paul later calls the law of the spirit of life, it's the single-minded devotion and love for God far above all. With that in mind, let's dive in, okay? So that's the big topic, love, right? You're like, oh, okay. Yes, of course, it's love everywhere in the Bible. Okay, well, we're going to go there, and it's going to get maybe even a little hairy at times, huh? This passage, then, we're going to go... First to the one in chapter 8. This passage is one that critics have said is showing Jesus to be harsh and not loving and kind. And at first glance, it, it kind of seems so, right? Here are two people who Jesus could have added to his list of followers. One, a scribe. We don't see too many scribes or teachers of the law saying, I will follow you. But here we have one 
who says this. He proclaims he'll follow where Jesus will go. And the other who is already described as a disciple, already following Jesus. The first seems like a prime candidate for Jesus to enlist in his followers. Someone of good standing among the people. And one who comes with much learnedness. And he's eager to follow. You would think Jesus would say, yeah, yeah, come follow me. As he says to his other disciples, and as he, we'll see later, as he says to Matthew. But instead, we read this reply to him. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the sun has no place to lay his head. To anyone paying attention, at least at, at first glass, if you're like me, you think, wait, what? What kind of response is that? Why does Jesus have to be so cryptic? Seems, seems a little put-offish anyway, right? And With someone so willing and eager, right? What does he mean, and why can't he just say it straight out? Well, how about the next person before we get there in the scene? It says, another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus replied to him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Again, my response is, wow, again, seems a little insensitive. Jesus seems a little insensitive. Why didn't Jesus say something like, yes, it's important to see your family. Of course, go ahead and do your duty. Love your family. I'll be here with open arms when you get back. Seems reasonable, right? Sounds like something we might say Jesus would say today. Like, when you need him, he'll be there waiting for you with open arms. Well, for one thing, if Jesus is who he says he is, the Son of God, the one who says, I and the Father are one, then he probably knows something we don't know about these two. So rightly responds to the heart of each of their matters. But before we look into what this could possibly be for each one of these men, I don't normally do this, but we're gonna, I'm gonna, I kind of made up some stories. Yes, some parables of my own, if you will. Um, to maybe see this a little more clearly today. Think about this as a parallel to the first man. Church, once upon a time, right? There once was a successful, intelligent young man, we'll say around 20 years of age, who dreamed of glory and being the hero, one of whom people would look to and admire to see strength. This starry-eyed young lad seeing commercials for being all you can be in the army, and the few, the proud, the Marines, with scenes of heroism and clean-cut fighters, bright uniforms with ribbons decorating it, and shiny swords at the side, decides he's going to go enlist in the United States Marine Corps, and eagerly dashes to the nearest military recruiter. He tells the recruiter of his dreams. Seeing these commercials, he says, I want to be like that guy in that commercial. The recruiter, though, who has served two tours, has seen battle, destruction, and death, instead of signing him up immediately, sits him down and begins to tell him of what it, his experience is, what it actually means to be a Marine. Sleepless nights, training so hard you get sick, mental stress, being gone from home for years at a time, being shot at, Enduring pain in a myriad of ways, and more. 
Only then can you be considered a Marine, he says. Well, why would the recruiter do this and not immediately have him sign the dotted line? Or consider another situation, maybe this other person, this other disciple. Here's this story, that of a young woman with considerable athletic talent who dreams of being on the U.S. women's soccer team. She watches games, revels in their victories, dreams of herself making goals, and even is a part of her own high school soccer team. But this young woman, instead of going to every practice and putting in the extra hours of drills, conditioning, game, film, study, early mornings, extra extra practices and weekends, what it really truly takes to get there, decides to spend time with friends instead of going to practice, (laughs) plays FIFA soccer video games instead of extra drills, decides she's going to watch a movie instead of that game film, and she'll study that later. And even after her parents repeatedly tell her She'll have to sacrifice some of those things to fulfill her dreams. Now, while my stories may not be perfect parallels for each of these situations in this this story that we're reading, I, I hope you're catching on to what Jesus might be saying to each of these men. To the first, he might be saying something like, Hey, listen, I know you've seen these miracles that I've been doing and you probably like all the crowds and attention I draw. I'm sure this all looks glorious and very advantageous to your career and your life goals, but I'm not here to help you attain your highest vision of yourself, and I'm not here to help you live your best life now. I'm not here to help you boost your career and give you power. No, no, that's that's not what following me, being my disciple, and and loving me means. You see, these things you hold most dear, do you love them more than me? I need you to give them up if you want to follow me. I want my followers to love me as I love them. So he says to him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You see what Jesus is getting at? Does he require all of his followers to be homeless? To give away all their finances? No, not necessarily. We can see his followers then and throughout history having homes and wealth. What then is he saying to them? He says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. We're going to get there. But first, sidebar, I think this will help us a little bit. This is the first time in Matthew we see Jesus refer to himself as the Son of Man. In case you're not familiar with this, Jesus' favorite title for himself, let's all turn to Daniel, Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, title for God, and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, 
was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Back in Matthew, the Son of Man, the Son of Man, this, this person has no place to lay his head. The Son of Man is a title for this second person of God, the one who was presented before the Ancient of Days and to whom was given kingship of all peoples, nations, and languages of all time, everlasting dominion, one that won't be destroyed, and this was the title Jesus gave himself. All this power, authority, glory, eternity, and this king has no place to lay his head. He the creator of all. Starting to get it? In Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this of Jesus. Who, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Sidebar, I like this paraphrase. He who had equal status with God, the very nature of God, who is God himself, Jesus, did not cling to the advantages of that status, but gave them up. He gave up power, peace, the full joy of intimacy with God, kingship, no limits to time and space, no vulnerability, no death. He gave that all up, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he even humbled himself and became obedient to death, and even death on a shameful cross. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You see, Jesus is not being harsh as in being unkind. He's just stating the truth, the heart of the matter. This is what it means to follow him. You do as he does. You do as he asks. You see, he gave up for a time his power, his glory, his home, his health, his life to rescue us. This is the love he shows us. So church, why can he not ask of this of us, those who profess to love him? Well, what about the second man? This man was already described as a disciple. He asked to go fulfill a family obligation, even showing love and honor for his family. What about him? Surely God would commend this, right? And according to God's nature and, and other evidence in Scripture, yes, absolutely. So why does he tell this man to leave immediately and follow him? I think he's saying something like, listen, if you truly love me and want to follow me, then do it. Otherwise, there will always be a, quote, the dead to bury, or some other excuse to not do as I say, to delay, to put off the actual act of following me. Or as in the case of the soccer player, your true desire for a thing will be shown by your actions. She wanted to be an athlete at the highest level, 
but she wouldn't discipline and sacrifice other comforts and obligations for it. Jesus says this, we're going to cover it later in Matthew 10, 37. He says this, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Or in the parallel passage in Luke 9, which adds a third man to this scene. If you go to Luke 9, we, we see this scene again, but there's a third man who says, he says, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Gritty, right? Again, what is the heart of what Jesus is saying? To not love your mother, father, son, or daughter? Don't say goodbye to your family? I don't think so. What he's saying is that your love for him should so far exceed your love for your family or anything else you cherish. That's as if, as if you almost didn't love them. Does that seem harsh? Consider this then. John 1.18 says, No one has seen the Father, no one has ever seen God, sorry, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Some translations say, in the bosom of the Father. Much closer than anything you can imagine is even a particular family member. That's how close he was with God. John 3.16, so for God so loved the world, right, that he, gave his, that he gave his one, well, I like the translation, only begotten, okay, the one that's so close to him, that is proceeding from him, gave his only begotten son. And in Philippians 2, again, coming back to, he did not consider equality with God, equal status with God, something to be kept, but he gave it up and he made himself nothing. You see it? God did this very same thing for you. And the father and son are so much closer than you are to your family, yet he chose to give this up, to be separated from him, because he loves us so. He's not asking more than he has already infinitely given. So you see, in these two replies, Jesus is setting that bar back to love. This is what it has been the whole time. I keep coming back to this verse, but 1 John 3, 1, it says, from what world, right? From what universe is this love the Father has lavished on us? See the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, for we really are. Church, he doesn't want a lukewarm love. Milk toast, soggy, half devotion. Would you want that from him? He can only demand a wholehearted love and devotion because he has given that first and more. So church, for this section, wrapping that up, this should be a reflection. Do you want him for him? Do you love God for himself? Or do you want him only to fulfill your goals, ambitions, 
and other loves. Is there something that if he asked you to give up to follow him, that you couldn't? Is who or what is your true love then? And even for those of us who have followed him for years, questions I always ask myself. Is there something I wouldn't give up to follow him? Let's go to Matthew 9 now. Verses 9 through 13. I'm going to read this again to remind us. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, well, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. All right. We're going to kind of take a, a second to kind of address a few of the details in the text, of which I'm probably not going to dwell on a whole lot, but I feel like it's, it's worth to kind of mention some of those things. Um, if you go to the other Gospels of Mark and Luke, this right here is recorded um, in the same way, except... Matthew is called Levi, right? And um, most scholars would say that it's really interesting, by the way, um, reading commentaries on this, that some people say this is evidence against it, and some people say, well, maybe, maybe Matthew didn't actually write Matthew, and, and, and there's, a, there's a lot of reasons for it. But um, I think the most reasonable one, and what a lot of scholars come back to, would say that this is the same person in all these Gospels with two different names, okay? Much like Simon was also Peter and Saul was also Paul. Um, these other, in all these Gospels, list the disciples in, in, in these Gospels, and they always list Matthew and not Levi. So this is the most likely case that Matthew and Levi are the same person. Other than that, the story of his call is the exact same. Another point, after giving hard replies to men with seemingly honorable character that we just read about, with honorable reputations and honorable careers, Jesus himself goes to a tax collector <laughs> to add to his followers, telling him to follow. Now, I think we kind of missed, we sometimes miss the significance of this. Okay, This is a lawyer that says, I will follow you, someone who's pretty well known and well thought of in the community. Well, maybe I shouldn't refer to lawyers but as that, but uh, you, you see the stature, right? That was a joke. None of you are lawyers. Okay. <laughs> um, but tax collectors, church, they're pariahs, social outcasts, misfits. They're considered not only thieves, lovers of wealth, but also traitors of the utmost to the Jewish people in line with Rome. 
They were grouped with sinners, but often listed apart from them as if they were a different class of sinner. Jesus asking a tax collector to be his disciple, one of the twelve, probably created not only gossip among outsiders, but also lots of tension for those who are already following Jesus. This call, his adding this to the group, could call into serious question Jesus' reputation. And then he goes and eats dinner with all of them. Okay? I want to put this, uh, this is a, well, I want to put this a little bit, and maybe it'll be a little sensitive, but I thought, I think Jesus was, or the Holy Spirit was calling to kind of put this parallel out there um, so that we really don't miss it. I want to pause just a second here to hit it home a little bit. Who, in the view of the Christian community, the conservative society today, would you put out there as the similar outcast or pariah status as sinners? Again, I'm not saying this is a complete parallel. I'm just trying to get you to have a good picture of it and why people push back. So I was asking Alyssa even about this this morning, make sure... But people groups that come to my mind that might make people question your morality if you hung out with them and that you shared a meal with them and called, and called them, well, drug addicts, prostitutes. How about the people of the LGBTQIA plus community, right? A lot of times we kind of shy away from that. The, but, but th- I want you to think of be, be thinking of that as we move forward. That's with tax collectors and sinners. Right, next point then. Luke's account adds, Matthew got up and left everything and followed him. Wait, we didn't read that in Matthew, right? But Luke says that. Okay, Matthew got up, left everything, and followed him. Giving up, think about this and what we just talked about. Giving up being a tax collector meant not going back. Giving up that community of friends and also not being allowed into a new community of friends, right? Never being allowed to enter into any other profession or trade or other community because no one would accept him. That was a huge leap of faith on Matthew's part that we probably miss, right? Now, we could highlight the fact that while men of seemingly reputable character and professions probably didn't follow Jesus after he said these things to him, Matthew did. And we could highlight the fact that Jesus followed Matthew and had dinner with him and his irreputable friends. These are both very important lessons. But what I want to focus on is Jesus' reply to the Pharisees' questions for the disciples, they asked him, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But first, a little bit more, digging a little bit deeper. The question of the Pharisees, have you ever thought about this from their point of view? If it's an honest question, what was their view, right? And does Jesus respond to it? Or how does he respond to their view? Don't other places, so let's kind of see it from their point of view if we can. Don't other places in the Bible teach these things, right? To not be yoked with the wicked. We see, we see Paul say something about that in 2 Corinthians. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? In Proverbs, 
It says in chapter 4, 14 through 15, it says, Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. And in Psalm 1, it says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Or in Psalm 26, 4 through 5, it says, I do, not, uh, I do not sit with deceitful men, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. And sharing a meal, especially in a public setting, implies acceptance and even approval. And there is a lot of wisdom in these verses and in the adages maybe like bad company corrupts, right? And one bad apple spoils the whole barrel and you can't run with dogs without getting fleas. So in this view, the view of upholding the righteous law and therefore showing your love to God through your obedience through the law, as they understood it, the Pharisees, and having nothing to do with those who do not do the same, to this view, really is a legitimate question. And they have a point. Their concern is not without merit. Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? As we realize this, Jesus' actions and response take on an even, an even more meaning. He says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Interestingly, I just thought, this is sandwiched between many of those physical healings in Matthew's gospel account, further emphasizing the physical realities that point to the spiritual realities, right? So he's saying that, but I want you to think through who are the healthy, who are the sick, who are the righteous, and who are the sinners? Partly, I think, there's a bit of irony here. Spiritually, all are sick. No one is righteous. No, not one, as the Bible says. But who does Jesus go to again and again? Those who need a doctor, right? And those who are also considered poor in spirit, those who recognize they are sick. But I would say even those who don't realize they're sick, right? And I praise him for that because where would I be without him if he didn't do that? At the same time, this can almost be considered an invitation to the Pharisees. If they would just stop and consider these questions, who are the healthy, the sick, who are the righteous, who are the sinners, and which ones are they? I think they automatically thought that they're the healthy and the righteous, right? Which are they? Which are you? It is also a call for them to rethink the whole paradigm. You see, they believed that Messiah would come to call the righteous and weed out the sinners. So that was their paradigm. That was their view. That's why Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners 
And it says in Luke to repentance. So I'm going to keep using that. I've not called, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So finally, this, this call to the Pharisees is seen in what I see as the heart of the matter. Jesus is called to them. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Aside from the fact that a supposedly unlearned man is calling very learned men to learn something and that they don't understand it, he's telling them, you just don't understand it. But as students, they should go and learn. A little humbling, but if they but heeded this call, they would get to the heart of the matter. By the way, the quotation is from Hosea 6, 6. And it's a Jewish idiom meaning, I desire mercy more than sacrifice. It's not that sacrifice isn't good, church, but they had forgotten that sacrifice follows mercy. Also, mercy here is the word chesed, which is a word rich in meaning. Okay? It also is translated as loving kindness or steadfast love because it means more than just a broad sense of love. It's an act, a love that goes beyond feeling, but acts in mercy without regard to self, puts others first even when it hurts, and is not to one's own advantage. A love that is costly. This is chesed, love. And this, church, is the heart of the matter, as we said at the beginning. God has throughout the Old Testament and the New, from the very beginning, issued this command. He says, as I have loved you, you love me. It's a costly love. But this is what God has been doing all along. It's what he's called mankind for. It is what he's called Israel to do. It is what he calls every person towards to know God and love him as we are loved by him. It is more than just being good. It is more than pleasing him by keeping the law. And it is more than just righteous acts or sacrifice. Go. Go and learn what this means. Sit and think with it. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. This is what the Pharisees were missing. They, like Israel of old, performed righteous acts not out of love, but for self. And Jesus says to them later, you're gonna, we're going to go into it, woe to you, this is in Matthew 23, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. It's as if God is saying, when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, I desire your utmost love for me, which automatically flows towards others. I desire your love for me more than comfort, more than a place to lay your head, more than your love of others in relationships. Whew. Right? I want perfect love. Church, how is your love for God? Is it always perfect and ever for Him? How does that make you feel? 
This is what God desires and calls us to. How is your love for him? Church, while we are called to love him with all of our mind, soul, heart, and strength, always, we can never achieve that in ourselves. While he calls us to it, to be perfect just as he is perfect, perfect in love towards him, we can't do it. But that's why we preach the gospel to ourselves and to others. This is what Christ did in our place, right? Not only did he take the wrath, the punishment, what we deserve for everything we do wrong, yes, every evil intention of the heart, he took all that, right? We, we say that. But also he lived the perfect life and loved God perfectly in our place. That's why we're not only justified, set free from prison and forgiven, that would not be a whole, like all-encompassing salvation. We're also adopted into his family, loved as if we loved him perfectly, made his children, heirs with Christ. And someday, because of this, we will be like Christ, loving God perfectly as he has called us to do. And this is what we are made for, church, to love him. And by loving him, to love what and who he loves. So lastly then, the call. As I can probably look out and, and pretty uh, confidently say that we're all believers here, I also always want to put this out here, and even as on a recording, if, if this gospel is new to you, if you would say you don't know him, I invite you to talk to me or one of the elders or deacons or any other fellow believer here. More than anything else, we all desire that of everyone. But church, those who love Christ, those of you who have chosen to follow him as he has commanded, follow me. Those of you who profess to have been redeemed. How is your love? Think about the scribe. Do you love God for anything other than himself? Think about the other disciple. Do you love anything more than God? Think about the Pharisees. How is your love for the social outcasts? Have you neglected the weightier aspects of the law? In other words, have you gotten so caught up in serving God that you've forgotten the first call to love him? So I leave you with this. Jesus calls us to chesed, love that costs. Because it cost him. He calls you to count the cost and then count everything else as rubbish in comparison to knowing him. Love him. Love others. Because it's worth it. For he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you love me. All other loves will fail to fulfill or save you and will leave you in the end. But love for God will not. Church, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ, 
Go out and love God and love people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Matthew and his account of Jesus. While this passage is a hard truth, a love that goes further and costs more, a love that challenges us, it is certainly no less than the love you have already loved and continue to love us with. So we say, we say thank you from the bottom of our varying beings, and we ask you to help us to love you and others likewise, truly. In Jesus' name, amen.